It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. In this episode, we have a conversation with jazz trumpeter and composer Daniel Hersog about his debut album as a composer called Night Devoid of Stars, which is named after a poignant and timely Martin Luther King quote. We will look at the story behind this enterprising project and hear some samplings of the music performed by a 16-piece orchestra featuring the incredible talents of Noah Preminger on tenor sax and Frank Carlberg on piano. Here is a snippet of the album's title track, Night Devoid of Stars. We recently caught up with Daniel Herzog at his home in Vancouver, Canada to learn more about this stunning new release. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So let me start a little bit about yourself, if I may. You were born in Vancouver, Canada, and I believe you may still be residing there. Yeah, I was born in uh, beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, and that's where, where I am now. I've lived here almost my whole life. Except for two years, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts. And during that time, of course, uh, you were a graduate of uh, New England Conservatory. Yes. Now, is that school primarily uh, devoted or geared toward the classical approach to music? Where does the jazz component fit in? Well, I believe it was the first university to offer a jazz degree in the United States. So it's got a long jazz history, not as long as its classical history. And you're very correct in your assertion. It has a wonderful history and tradition of classical performers coming out of there. And when I was at school, I had uh, tons of friends who were in the classical program who were all phenomenal musicians. Now, when you were growing up, were your parents musicians or what was the influence for you to move into the world of music? 
Well, uh, my father is an avid jazz listener and uh, a hobbyist piano player, but he loves, he loves playing. He plays for a few hours a day. And I was the beneficiary of a fantastic high school music educator. So when I got into my high school jazz band, that's when I really became hooked and really became excited on the prospect of being a musician. And he set me up with local professionals for lessons and he got me on my first gigs. So I think he was probably the main influence of what I'm doing today. So the, the music influence uh, toward jazz came by way of maybe a saturation of jazz music within your household and then eventually in the school? Absolutely, both those things are true. And another thing was I was very into um, improvisation in the theatrical sense. There was an improv troupe at our school and we would do acting and scenes that were improvised. And I was fascinated by this. I felt it was like super rewarding and completely kind of engrossing to be a part of. And then my music teacher said, well, if you love improvising, you can also do that in music. And then he, you know, I think he played me a John Coltrane recording and he said, well, and what you're listening to now is improvised. And from that moment, I was, I was completely hooked. I think it was the kind of excitement towards improvising that was the main thing that, that spurred me on. Where did the trumpet come into play for you? Well, the trumpet was the instrument that I, um, I had to join my school band in grade six. So I had played the piano as a young child, sort of middlingly. I, it never really, never really stuck. But I loved playing the trumpet, basically from the moment I started. Well, of course, it's uh, also better as an adult uh, to carry a trumpet on a plane than a piano. <laughs> yeah, not, they haven't made either easy, though. So the trumpet then became a vital part of your musical uh, path. And mm -hmm. were you influenced by any particular jazz trumpeters? Absolutely. Uh, the record Study in Brown was one of those kind of eye-opening epiphany moments in my life. When I first heard Clifford Brown playing on Cherokee and on Sandu from that record, that changed everything. Him um, and also seeing uh, John Faddis perform live. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I saw him with the Dizzy Gillespie Alumni All-Stars, and I had never seen anything like that in my life. He is an amazing trumpeter, and not only that, but he's been connected with the artistic program at Columbia College in Chicago, and he's a phenomenal instructor, a supporter of jazz education, as well as a phenomenal trumpeter performer himself. Yes. So you saw him in performance then, and then that was intriguing enough for you to continue the path? If I wasn't hooked by then, that night sealed the deal. The mastery that he possessed was, was like nothing I'd seen. Also, one of the members of my orchestra and featured soloist on this record, Brad Turner, who is a Canadian jazz trumpet player living in Vancouver, he, I think, locally inspired me maybe more than anyone else. I've had his CDs since I was in high school. I've gone to see him perform from a young age. And I think he, he very much has kind of set the musical standard uh, to which I hope to one day reach. He certainly, I think I said in the liner notes, he's sort of the light on the hill kind of in my, my trumpet playing life. But then it seems like you were taken along the road to become a composer. And it yes. seems like much of your curriculum uh, at New England Conservatory was also geared toward composition. I've always loved big band music. And so wanting to write it was 
sort of a natural inclination. Playing the music of Thad Jones and Mel Lewis when I was at university, listening to the music of Gail Evans, I loved it so much I, I wanted to try it myself. And New England Conservatory was a place that really shaped that for me. It was a place to kind of hone my, my craft. I went into that school very green. I had written some things but not really been familiar with any sort of processes or, or strategies. I'd just sort of thrown things at the wall and seen what had stick. And it was Frank Carlberg's mentorship uh, that really helped me find my voice as a writer. Now, while you were at the New England Conservatory, I understand you won the Gunther Schuler Medal. Would you explain yes. that for us? Well, um, it came as quite a shock to me because it was it was the first year uh, that award had existed. Uh, Gunther had just passed, and it was for contributions to music and student life. So I had no idea I would be the recipient of such an award until I was called on stage to receive it. And... I mean, to be the first recipient and to be connected in any way to the name Gunther Schuller came as a huge honor. And while you were there, you also uh, worked with some uh, well-known uh, jazz composers and artists, John Hollenbeck, Dave Holland, Ken Schaphorst. That was quite a faculty. It was an embarrassment of, of riches. To be at that school and receive the world-class mentorship that I did, I'm, I'm sort of a, eternally grateful. So you also now are an instructor at, uh, what is it, uh, Capilano University? Yes. And you teach jazz trumpet there. Yeah, I teach jazz trumpet. I lead a trumpet ensemble, and I have one, one composition student at the moment. And I have never enjoyed a job so much in my life, I would say. I kind of, I, I look forward to any day I'm up on campus. Hopefully my students look forward to the lessons as much as I look forward to teaching them. Well, education is important, especially when you can create a continued legacy in that music, be it jazz or any other form of music itself. Uh, so I, I'm sure that that's a very, very rewarding piece of work for you in your life. Absolutely it is. And I feel a responsibility that being the beneficiary of great mentorship myself, knowing how important that is, I think I, I'm sort of compelled to pass it on in, in any way I can. Moving into the composition area, this, this is something that has always intrigued me when it comes to uh, people that are composers, because in your head, or at least in your vision uh, and your passion for music, you need to hear all the parts, not just your trumpet playing, but you yeah. need to hear the saxophone, you need to hear the piano, you need to hear the drums, the bass, etc. How does that work? One of the kind of the important distinctions that I learned while I was at New England Conservatory is the difference between when I'm composing and when I'm orchestrating. When I'm building compositional material, when I'm composing, I'm thinking pitches, I'm thinking rhythms. When I get that established, I go back afterwards to orchestration. Then I'm thinking instrumental colors and voices. Do I want this to be in a, a trumpet with a harmon mute or a solo tenor saxophone? That gives me all my options. I try not to compose and orchestrate at the, at the same time. And it, it seems to me that that would be such a difficult process. Uh, I, I played an instrument a long time ago. It was, it was hard enough just reading the music and, and performing <laughs> it, let alone composing it and thinking about, well, what would others play if they were playing alongside of me? Well, one of the things with composing is you've got a lot more time and you can work much slower than when, when performing. It's sort of like the 
the slowest possible form of improvisation. You have forever to revise. You can also take many tries at it until you, until you get it right, which is not a luxury you have in live performance. So is, is this something that Daniel Hersock would like to be known uh, as later in life or uh, your legacy uh, leaving behind that it was you the great composer or you the trumpeter or you the educator? Oh my goodness. I, I mean, hopefully all three. I think there's something lovely about having compositions published and printed that could be played after I was not around. I think that's kind of a beautiful a beautiful idea. And I think that was also what spurred me on to record this record. If I hadn't recorded these compositions, it's sort of like, sort of like they didn't exist. Well, and of course it would continue long after you're gone, as opposed yeah. to a, a performance you did one night in April of 2021. But instead, if you leave a song behind that you wrote and composed, that's, that's there forever. Yeah, and the beautiful part about that is it's also open to individual interpretation. And I find writing music for improvisers, that's kind of the most exciting part. I write a melody for Noah Preminger to play on the tenor saxophone, or I write a, um, a piece that'll feature Frank Carlberg on piano. I have an idea of what they're going to play, but it's their personality, their individual take on it that sort of makes it special. So as a composer, then, uh, you're not offended, if you will, if somebody is not playing exactly the notes that you put on the chart or the paper, but instead improvised and took it to another level or a different direction? It all depends their, their role in the ensemble when they're making those decisions. I'm quite particular about how the written music is played in the ensemble. When a player, when I'm giving a player freedom to improvise, that's a genuine trust in that player. I want them to feel that freedom to take risks to make it their own. Well, doesn't that sometimes make it all the sweeter? Uh, it just enhances your music? It enhances it and it surpasses it, what I would be capable of writing myself. So speaking of writing, you had a new release come out, uh, and it's called Night Devoid of Stars, and it's a 16-piece orchestra showcase. Tell me about the development, first of all, of uh, the title, Night Devoid of Stars. Well, Night Devoid of Stars uh, comes from a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, uh, which I believe is, uh, violence begets violence, removing light from a night already devoid of stars. And... Sort of my process for writing this music, I always write first thing in the morning and I have the news on in the background. And the last few years when I was writing this music, there was sort of no shortage of kind of horrible events being covered in the news. And I, I think that seeped into my writing. That's certainly what inspired the title. Also, I think musically, the title track, Night Devoid of Stars, has the idea of sort of light emerging from darkness. The piece starts musically in a very dark place, but after eight or nine minutes, it ends, it ends in a hopeful way. And for me, that was kind of my hope for the album to sort of follow that, that arc. So you would take this and write or compose all of the selections for the album, and then you would maybe show some of the chaos, maybe show some of the beauty, show some of the uh, joy that comes through the process of the music from start to finish kind of thing? Absolutely. And I also wrote with soloists in mind. So when I was writing these pieces, I knew it would be Frank and Noah that I was featuring 
when I had room for a trumpet solo, I knew it would be Brad Turner. And having those musical voices predetermined and in my head sort of greatly informed my writing. For you personally, has this been a purging or uh, an opportunity for you to shake loose of the darkness that you were feeling emotionally or otherwise uh, disturbed by? I think these sort of creative works were cathartic to me, but writing them and, and having them played and then being able to sit back and sort of listen to them. Now that they're done, they, they don't return me to sort of a, a dark place that I may have been in when I was writing it. Now I can, I can sit back and just kind of enjoy them as a piece and enjoy them, kind of the beautiful parts of it that I like. If I could sit down and had to listen to three or four and only those, uh, what would they be? What would number one be? Would it be Night Devoid of Stars? For me, it would be uh, Cloud Break, the opening track. I think the solo voices, Noah and Brad, on that that record were phenomenal. I'm very happy with the composition of it. I think it was the one that I wrote right before we went into the studio, so it perhaps represented kind of the most growth for me as a composer. I would say Makeshift Memorial, in particular Frank's piano introduction to that. He plays a two-minute piano introduction.
The only instruction I gave him in the studio was to just play something that sets up the mood of the record. So we asked for a few seconds of playback from our introduction. He got it in his head and then he created that beautiful introduction. And I think, boy, this is a great question. The third one I would, perhaps a motion, uh, which is kind of the uh, Keith Jarrett inspired almost gospely tune. kind of brought a smile to my face the whole time we were recording it and I've enjoyed listening to it since. It's a great tune it really is uh, I, I enjoyed that. Also one piece that I enjoyed only in reference to your liner note in the album itself when you did Jerome Kern's uh, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. Yes. Uh, it was portrayed in the liner notes as a macabre treatment of this beautiful ballad. How so? I mean, it sounded very, I wouldn't say I would have called it macabre, but it, it was uh, beautiful. I suppose my introduction to that piece of music was Clifford and Strings, which is kind of warm and beautiful from the very beginning. And then I also heard the Platters sing that song you know, doo-wop vocals. Um, and for this arrangement, I wanted to juxtapose kind of very warm orchestral sounds with Frank Karlberg's dissonant solo piano. And there's one point as he's playing the last A out of the piece, solo piano that he takes his fists and bangs them as hard as he can at the bottom of the piano. And it creates this amazing rumble.
And I remember in the studio, it brought me to tears. Like I thought it was just the most beautiful musical choice he could have made. And I had to conduct the rest of the piece and I had tears welling in my eyes, kind of with that beautiful sound. But I would say that that was a kind of a macabre and, and dark moment, but there was a lot of beauty in it. And you know, you, you, you sum that up uh, very appropriately because those words are used in the liner notes. Uh, and, and you can sense that, especially when you hear that pound on the piano. But then the direction that it takes from there is really quite beautiful. And by the way, uh, Frank is uh, an incredible pianist. Uh, he, he's just truly amazing, as of course is Noah on uh, tenor sax. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, Frank was a big teacher of Noah's as well. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that that connection, when I first started to go to New England Conservatory, uh, by coincidence, I had been placed in, in all of Frank's classes, basically. And I didn't, I wasn't familiar with his music going in. And then by sort of a couple days in class, it had dawned on me that I was getting to spend all this time with this kind of profoundly genius individual whose music I'm I'm you know enthralled by it every time I listen to it I get more from it you know it's interesting uh, Daniel because right now a piece or recording called Night Devoid of Stars based on a Martin Luther King quote seems rather poignant in these days of, of turmoil and challenge for the world and I, I guess uh, it was prophetic maybe in a way because you wrote this uh, what is it 2018 yeah, I mean it it was prophetic, but there was certainly there was certainly no shortage of challenge then. I mean, obviously these this past kind of, you know, the immediate past has been like nothing I have kind of experienced. But all those issues as as is being brought to the forefront were very much be you know, were very much a part of a couple of years ago too. There perhaps a brighter light is being shone on them now, but those those challenges still very much existed. Now, as you were creating and developing this you ended up with a 16-piece orchestra was that part of the intent from the beginning to make it very orchestral or were you trying to maybe think of a trio quartet something uh, along that lines it was intentional so this band the daniel herzog jazz orchestra i put together in 2011 so it's been my my working big band since then i'm very lucky to have a lot of great doublers in my band. The woodwind players in my band, they play saxes, they play flutes and clarinets, and because I have those voices available to me, I use them. And also, kind of, probably my biggest hero of arranging in Gil Evans, he wrote so masterfully with woodwinds. I, I love trying to, trying to emulate that. Now, when you were assembling this band, are these people that you had known for a long time? and are in the Vancouver area, or are they from other uh, geographical locations as well? Thirteen of the sixteen are Vancouver musicians uh, with whom I've worked for years. They're in my band, but I also play in other projects with them. So they are uh, people that I've known for years. Frank Carlberg and Noah Preminger were my kind of main musical connections that I made in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And Michael Serene, uh, the drummer, he was the one person I hadn't met before the record. I picked him up at the airport, and a few days later we were in the studio, and he just brought this phenomenal kind of creativity and freshness to the record. 
from what you've said already that you're uh, quite pleased with this project and the way that it has uh, turned out. Yes. I mean, this was my first record, and the fact that it was a 16-person orchestra, three of which, you know, flew in from the East Coast, it sort of amplified just how large an endeavor it was to make a record. I learned so much throughout this last year. I don't even think I knew really what mastering was until I until I had a record and it needed mastered. Going through the mixing and the editing process, I've grown immensely, I think, as a musician since we were in the studio. This past year has been phenomenally educational about what it takes to make a record. And it gave me this newfound respect for recording artists who have, you know, 10, 15 records out. I mean, I did this thing once and I sort of, in some ways, feel like I'm barely standing at the end of it. And, you know, some people put out a record every year. This is an incredible record. I uh, truly enjoyed listening to it. uh, And it does evoke all of the things that uh, you talked about uh, already and could sense or feel that shadow and light concept as well as the joy in the music because you you don't leave people just being pushed over a musical cliff. You sort of bring it back around to the front to say, okay, it's going to be all right. You know, and I, I have this fabulous uh, writing mentor, Fred Stride, the Canadian composer, and he that was his... Um, that was his feedback as I was making this record. He said, you know, this is, you're too much of the same kind of color in your music, kind of what you alluded to with the pushing over of the musical cliff. He said, you need to balance this out. There needs to be some more light in this. And he, he kind of laughs because he says, you know, that I'm, I'm kind of a positive, kind of sunny dispositioned guy. But then all my writing, you know, going into this kind of was in a dark place. But he, he definitely urged me to, to strike that balance. You recorded this in May of 2019. Yes. Why a year later to release it? <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the label was wondering that too. I wanted a few months away from it before I listened to it. I wanted to step away from it and then be able to hear it with fresh ears. I mean, some of it, this is not a very exciting answer, but a little bit was um, the the music business side of it. I have a wonderful publicist, and it was necessary to uh, find a time that that worked with her schedule. Uh, There was some strategy about a good release time for the label. But I think the record has probably been finished since about December or January, and then it was just finding the right time for for all parties involved to release it. So it was very nice to finally have it out in the world because I've had, I have 400 copies sitting in my closet, which have been there since (laughs) four or five months. Well, here's a chance to sell them now. Here you go. (laughs) So where, where can people find out about your music? Well, I have a website, danielhersog.com. It is streaming on all platforms, uh, so whatever people's streaming preferences. And also sellerlive.com, they can buy it straight from the label, which if I were to choose how people wanted to uh, pick it up, that would be my my recommendation. Also, uh, there are three beautiful videos uh, from the recording session that were kind of lovingly put together over hours and hours and hours by a dear friend 
Um, so if anyone wants to watch, I have videos of Night Devoid of Stars, Motion, and Makeshift Memorial up on my YouTube channel that I think if people love the music, they'll, they'll get a kick out of watching it. I'm sure they will, and they will truly not only enjoy the video, but just uh, the music itself. If you don't have the video or watch it, put the music on, grab your favorite beverage, and just get lost in the music. And I would have to say, Daniel, at this point, considering the times that we live in right now, the release of this album is kind of a, a bittersweet timing because you were supposed to have performed that album at the Vancouver Jazz Festival, which has been yeah, canceled. Yeah, we had been given a lovely gig in a in a beautiful hall with a gorgeous grand piano, and flights were booked, and hotel rooms were reservations were made, and all that is on ice. But that's okay. We're gonna wait until we can safely and responsibly do it again, and then there will be a CD release show. I'm determined it will happen, maybe even in the same venue. We just need to wait for, for it to be safe to do so. Yes, and, and I would assume that for the future, you may continue with this 16-piece orchestra that you currently have assembled? Absolutely, I will be. Daniel, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on All That's Jazz, and all the best for the future, not only in your work as a composer, as a musician, and an educator of jazz, but just in general, stay healthy and be well, my friend. Thank you so much. You as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Daniel Hersog. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Our next episode will feature jazz pianist, vocalist, and composer, Hannah Bayardi. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.